Welcome back to another episode of Rhodes Australia's podcast, The Hub. My name's Simon Morgan, and I'm Director of Corporate Affairs here at RA. Sustainability is a massive focus for the transport and infrastructure sectors, and increasingly the term is being used to extend well beyond conversations around net zero. In this episode, we're going to be looking at several of those different aspects of sustainability, environmental sustainability, economic sustainability, and workforce sustainability. To help us do that, we're very fortunate to be joined by an industry leader whose career experience has given her incredibly valuable insights across each of those areas, and who is passionate about sharing those insights with others in the industry. Belinda Varant is Managing Director, Transportation at Arcadis Australia, a role to which she was appointed in August 2021. She has more than 25 years' experience across engineering, business management, project management and design management, and has worked with Arcadis in a variety of roles in both the UK and Australia for over 20 years. Belinda, thanks very much for joining us on The Hub. Thank you very much, Simon. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Hello and welcome to everyone listening. So congratulations on the new role. Perhaps uh, just to start with, if you could tell our listeners a bit more about what your role entails and the career journey that led you to running the transport and mobility business at Arcadis. So the role involves the day-to-day running of the business, which is leading and managing our amazing group of people, uh, which I really enjoy doing, supporting our clients by winning work and from an operational perspective, ensuring that our projects are delivered successfully. Uh, as part of the governance role, which I also play, I sit on the executive review group for a number of our key projects, uh, including the Warringah Freeway Upgrade and also the Easing Cities Congestion Program as well. In terms of my career journey, it's it's interesting. I actually chose civil engineering. It certainly wasn't through having a nun as a career advisor at school, but it was more of the diversity of opportunities that I saw that civil engineering could really lead to in the future. Although I didn't have a number of role models at the time. I remember going through the UAP book, the university's entrance book, and literally reading about careers. And I just found the description of civil engineering interesting, exciting, uh, and really opening many, many opportunities in the future. I have to say, though, I think my dad was probably my greatest role model uh, early on, and he gave me the belief I could do anything and I should search for what I enjoyed doing and making a difference. Uh, and this year, I just have to add, my my dad's actually been awarded the Order of Australia Medal for his work in the medical profession. Oh, great. He is an inspiration. He's 75 and still working as a GP. And I think his passion for looking after people definitely shone through. So I think that motivation to love what you do is certainly something that has always resonated with me. Uh, after I graduated, I started working for a large multidisciplinary design company. And that really exposed me to lots of interesting projects. I think the secret early on was really saying yes to all the opportunities that were put in front of me. One in particular, I remember I had the opportunity to work on the Northside Storage Tunnel project as a tunnel design engineer. And I remember thinking early on, oh, this doesn't sound too exciting, but I'll give it a go. And three years later, uh, it was a fantastic opportunity to go through the design phase on site um, during construction and then even into the operational phase as well. We talked a little bit there about obviously your, your father as a mentor and, and um, some of the other people who uh, helped you get to where you are today. We know the industry today is still heavily male dominated, but thinking back to when you first started and it's now been, you've had two decades of experience, how severe was the gender imbalance 20 years ago? And did you have any female mentors in the industry at that point that were able to help you navigate that situation? Yeah, it's interesting because I watch with 
anticipation of, you know, seeing numbers increasing in, in engineering. When I went through, we were probably less than 10% in terms of the female population, mm-hmm. uh, probably even around 6 or 7%. In terms of female role models, um, there was there's, was one lady I remember listening to at a, a women in construction conference when I was um, early in my career, and it did resonate with me. So it, I think it's some of the advice you do pick up at those conferences has been invaluable. And it was just before I was thinking about, you know, wanting to start a family. And I thought, how am I going to do this without this impacting on my career? And she said to me, or she said to the audience very clearly, you can do it all, but remember, you don't have to do it all at the same time. So you've got your whole life and your whole career ahead of you. And that's just always resonated. It didn't have to be a choice, one or the other. And that's really worked for me. I have two children. Uh, I took a year off both times. Uh, when they were first born, only to return with very new skills, which I, I certainly take with me on my career journey at the moment and continue on that journey. Just coming back to your current role for a moment, I just wonder if you could give our listeners an idea of the, the size of the team that you're leading in Australia now and, and how your own role fits in with uh, the Arcadis leadership structure. Yeah, the, the transportational mobility team in Australia is just over about 600 people. Uh, and we also have an offshore team in the Philippines and in India as well, which another, which is another about 200 people. Uh, it is a large team and we, it's one of three global business areas that we have at ICATUS and the other two being places and resilience are the other, what we call GBAs or global business areas. We are actually aligned globally into these three areas. So we no longer report regionally. So we no longer have that country level accountability or reporting structure. So we no longer have a C-suite of management, if you like, in Australia. So uh, myself and the other two directors are actually the co-directors of Australia. But we've seen like in a short period of time, the real benefits of this shared leadership model. In my view, we've got the ability to be even more agile in our decision-making. And I think in the short period of time um, that we have moved to this structure, we've already seen that. I will make a point, though. It does work because the three of us are extremely collaborative. There aren't any egos at play. We all work together, you know, with the one goal. And I think that's probably key to underpinning that co-leadership model. So Belinda, Arcadis is obviously a company with operations all over the world. So how does your role and your team interact with Arcadis's global structure? So I form part of the global mobility executive team, along with the other country areas, directors for mobility. Uh, and the core mobility executive team is led by our global president or head of mobility, Greg Steele, who's actually based in Australia. And the new structure provides a great opportunity to collaborate and share information between countries And it has really allowed us to focus and scale and not just reinvent the wheel in every country every single time. We're really seeing benefits of this already. So, for example, one is on in terms of model-based systems engineering. So it's been used on one of the large projects in the UK. And we're actually now looking to roll that out on the Transport Access Program in New South Wales and actually bringing people out here to do training and implementation as well. And certainly we're seeing, I think, you know, the UK and Europe are really ahead in terms of EV transition. And so therefore we can use the the knowledge and experience they have. For example, in London, we're doing some work with the Metropolitan Police to develop a solution to optimise the charging infrastructure and support their creation of the business case to transition their fleet to 100% ultra-low emissions vehicle 
Excellent. Just while we're we're thinking globally, um, the drive towards net zero and better sustainability outcomes is obviously a, a major global priority in the delivery of transport infrastructure and services. Is there a particular initiative that your team is engaged in within that space that's delivering positive results? The issue that we have identified is that the common design processes, which you know we're all doing every day, don't really consider carbon in decision making. So at Arcadis, what we've developed is a really simple method to embed sustainability into our design process. So the status quo is that design drawings um, are t- traditionally developed in complete isolation to sustainability, which is considered something as an add-on that you would do at the end. So what we've tried to do is really align engineering and sustainability design outcomes by actually measuring the CO2 impact uh, and the assessment is actually undertaken for the whole life cycle. So basically the pavements are compared using carbon and the enviro points and the results are then annualised, normalised, and then we actually show them on the design drawings. The The impacts of this has been really noticeable, actually. So the design decision-making has improved significantly. We've seen on one particular project the immediate benefit where the client's actually permitted a new pavement type. Uh, and that's actually reduced in a 75% reduction in carbon um, and now really trying to roll that out as business um, as usual. And the the inspiration, I just have to touch on this, it was actually through nutritional food labelling. So, you know, being able to see on, on you know, food product what is in it has yes. really has yep. driven that change. So our thoughts are if you actually measure it, you make it visible, you put it on a drawing, people are going to take note of the impacts and that will drive change. Yes, that certainly aligns with a lot of what's in the uh, the Journey to Net Zero report that um, RA and, and other organisations have recently put together. And, and one of the things we say in that is that, you know, this challenge is too big for any one sector or one player to solve. So um, there's going to have to be a lot of collaboration you know, between industry and government and between organisations within each of those spheres. I just want to turn now to another um, element of sustainability, the economic one, which is ultimately something that's determined by productivity. A technology can be a great enabler of, of productivity, but only if people are willing and able to adopt it. And it's probably fair to say that the engineering and construction sector hasn't been an early adopter of technology uh, in Australia. Whereabouts is Arcadis on that journey in terms of digital innovation? Are there areas of the business that are now realising the benefits of digital approaches in engineering and design? Good point. I just want to pick up on, on what you said in terms of the digital adoption. I think in our industry, the digital adoption is definitely linked to investment or, or lack thereof. Uh, and I think it, the challenge for us as an industry is that, you know, given that what we do is linked to government funding, we, we don't see the investment that other industries, for example, the medical profession may have. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, um, so it's whilst it has been slower, in terms of Arcadis's digital journey, I think we're well on our way. Uh, I like to think actually that we're ahead of most. Digital investment for us is automation. So how can we do things smarter, quicker and more efficiently to save times? And this is not across one particular aspect, but needs to actually be across all our different work streams um, or in the design process. So we actually have now automation specialists in our business, uh, which we've never had before. And we really see the benefits of this on a global scale. In, in terms of benefits, one of them is de- the clarity and visibility that digital modelling and the advancement has brought to the many, many moving parts of a complex infrastructure project. Some, some of the things are visualisation, accessibility, 
to 3D models um, just improves communication more than anything. A couple of things I, I do want to just make mention of, though, that the benefits of what we're doing in that design phase are often realised later in the project life cycle. So whilst we have a lot of benefits in the design phase, the benefits are realised during construction and yes. also during asset um, the asset life cycle, the back end as well. So this is through reduced clashes, reduced rework, uh, and a much more improved asset data to be able to manage assets better in the future. Just one of my passion areas at the moment, which I'm keen for the industry to appreciate uh, and recognise, is the work that we're doing in the digital space in the design phase is still in addition to the work that we were previously doing. So we're still producing the 2D drawings. We haven't let go of the drawings in lieu of the 3D models, which we, when you'll see real advancements in efficiency. Um, so at the moment in that design phase, it is actually taking longer because we're actually doing more. And is that people's confidence about, they're not quite sure about the 3D stuff, so we're still doing the drawings as well just to make sure we've got all the bases covered? Or uh, it, it is a bit of that. It, it's definitely security. It, it's probably a big part of it. I think the industry is still still holding on to the way it's always done things and, and letting go of that is just such a fundamental shift. It's like any complex change. You touched on this a little bit a minute ago, Belinda. The workforce moving forward is going to require a quite different skill set compared with what's been traditional in engineering if we're going to transition towards these technology-based solutions. That's both a challenge and an opportunity in the sense that it allows the industry to pitch itself as a career destination to those who might be from, a say, a more IT-based background than an engineering one. Do you feel that the industry is currently doing enough to leverage that opportunity and what more could we be doing? In short, at the moment, no. I think that there is more work to be done. I think we're at the, the realisation point that there are new roles which never existed before. We haven't really gone into the next stage of mapping out what the skills are that are required, changing our prerequisite requirements and looking for different ways and avenues to attract that talent. So as projects get larger, roles are also get bro getting broken down further. So I think we need to pause uh, and think what we need to assess the skills that are required to undertake a particular role. You know, do we look at cadetships, for example? We're at the tip of the iceberg on this particular issue. Just following on from that brings us around to the broader question, obviously, of workforce sustainability, making sure that we have a workforce that's fit for purpose and also which reflects the community that our industry is seeking to serve. Now, we know our sector is competing with others to attract and retain workers. We've got a, a massive pipeline of transport projects to deliver in Australia, but we're already experiencing labour market shortages and those are projected to become even more acute in the next several years. The COVID-19 pandemic was a great opportunity to demonstrate that flexible work can actually be effective, both in terms of the productivity outcomes and giving people more of a work-life balance than perhaps they had previously. Arcadis has an initiative that's described as commuting with intent. Now, could you explain what that is perhaps and what some of the benefits are? So we've actually rolled out our first formal flexible working policy back in 2016. We didn't wait for COVID to happen, and we've continued to evolve it ever since. It was actually in early 2021 we first sort of revamped our flex policy again. That was in light of COVID, and at that point we sort of mandated the return to work three days a week yes. and then evolved it again to where we are at today, which is in early 2022, and we adopted this hybrid model for the majority of our workforce, and it's about coming into the office with a purpose or an intention to commute. 
the reason why we arrived at that was we appreciated that there is a huge diverse range of skills and roles within our business and there's also these actually contain a huge range of tasks which have to be undertaken in each role. There are roles which require obviously you know high levels of engagement and interaction and others actually which require really focused working and and it actually varies so it varies week to week project to project depending on which client you're working for. We, We took that mindset I suppose it's thinking about what is needed and focusing on the output of what you're trying to achieve rather than be prescriptive about dictating what is required. We are adults after all. If you empower people, you're going to get the most out of them. So that the underlying value for this tool work is trust and respect. So we just have to trust that individuals are accountable for the role and that they will bring their best to work each day and that they respect each other. And is there is there evidence that it's paying a dividend in terms of staff retention? I think with the demand the demand in our industry at the moment, we we can definitely see that flexibility plays an important role in the attraction uh, and also the retention of staff. It's an area we actually run a quarterly employee engagement survey, and it's an area specifically within our engagement survey uh, which scores very highly in in terms of you know retention and attraction of females. It's definitely helped, but I will say it's actually had a great impact on young males as well. You know, share responsibilities more and more in raising families, and I think that's the key. It's to opening it up to uh, to everyone to to allow flexibility, whatever their circumstance. Uh, one thing I'm a part of is the Rose Australia Capacity Expert Panel, which is really looking into this in a, in a number of ways. And a lot of the issues that we're actually facing, as I said, are all leaked. Uh, one one really good example is um, we've undertaken a review of the construction industry task, cultural task force, the draft culture standard, and this was released in October last year. And I have to say, look, it doesn't solve all the issues, but it has some really clear recommendations. And I think we all collectively should support it. We need to to stop debating what the perfect answer is and actually just get on with it. What are what are some of the remaining barriers? I, I think in terms of one of the points in the culture standard is around working hours and, and working hours comes or is driven through tight programs. So I think the pressure on our project programs is definitely an underlying uh, issue and I think you know, this is where we have to work collaboratively with government because at the end of the day, you know, government is, if you like, mandating when a particular project will be open. So we have to work back from there. It's until we can give more flexibility in those project programs, it will be hard to truly achieve, you know, reduce working hours, moving to a truly five-day working week, et cetera. So that's, that's one aspect that we can't ignore for this to happen. And the other one in in terms of culture, I suppose, is it still comes back to doing things the way we have always done them. It is still absolutely entrenched in our industry attitudes towards things and whether it's language that's being used, whether it's blame for particular things, whether it's a hierarchical way that, you know, organisations are set up, it leads to it leads to a culture, you know, a culture of I come back to trust at the end of the day, a, a yes. culture of yep. maturity, a culture of ownership, that we all have a part to play in that. There's still very much 
to a degree, non, non-equality in the way that our, our industry is set up, if you like. Attitudes towards things, behaviour. Behaviour is a, is a massive one and I, th- I think there is a difference in behaviour in the pure sort of out-on-site construction industry versus in a design office. We need to be, yeah, we need to treat each other as equals uh, a bit more and there's a lot more work to be done. Excellent. Look, Belinda, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. It's really important that RA members and our wider audience are able to hear directly from those who are actively working to shape an industry that's able to deliver better outcomes for its workforce, for the community and indeed for the planet, as we've discussed today. And the perspectives and examples that you've shared can hopefully spur some of our listeners to look at some of the things they're doing in their own day-to-day operations and consider if there's opportunities to emulate some of the examples and practices that you've discussed in their own companies. So thank you very much for being so generous with your time and joining us on The Hub today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's it for this edition of The Hub. Keep an eye on our website and our weekly email newsletter, RA Insider, for details of other initiatives that RA members are working on to enhance sustainability outcomes, embrace the power of technology, and improve workforce culture across our industry. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support of RA. We hope you'll join us for another episode soon.